All right, so we're going to be looking at chapters 27 and 28, and we're going to finally get Paul to Rome. Okay, he's been dying to go to Rome, almost literally, and he's going to get there, and that's where the story will end. Uh, Luke does not tell us what happens to him after he gets to Rome. It just ends with him in Rome. And we know from uh, history that he likely got released after about two years in captivity in Rome, went back on a, yet another missionary journey. About a year after that, he got put back in uh, prison again in Rome, and it's believed that he was killed by Nero. Um, and there's some debate on exactly how he was killed, but we do know he was martyred. And so Luke doesn't go into any of that. It's almost like Luke ends his, his book expecting to write a sequel, but we never got that sequel. Uh, so it just ends with him there. And I think it's appropriate that it ends the way it does because, as I just prayed, the story keeps going. That story's still being written. The church started in Acts chapter 2, but it's still growing and what's kind of cool is when we look at um, the book of Revelation, we're going to look at what happens to the church and that the church one day will be taken from this place and we'll go to be with the Lord. And then some things are going to happen on this planet that you don't want to be around to see, but we'll find out what those are. So Rome, before we get there, I want to kind of backtrack just a second and talk about um, when he gets to Rome, and one of the interesting things about Paul is that Paul was always doing ministry, no matter what happened to him. And in Rome, he writes four of his letters. And I want to read just a portion from each of those, just to give you an idea of what kind of a guy Paul was, if you don't know by now. So he wrote this letter to Philemon. This is kind of a personal letter. It says, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindnesses often refresh the hearts of God's people. Now, Philemon was a gentleman that Paul knew. And he's writing him because there's another gentleman named Onesimus who was a slave who belonged to Philemon who had escaped and somehow had run into Paul, had become a believer, had become a friend of Paul's, and now Paul is sending him back to Philemon. And he writes this letter to Philemon saying, treat him like a brother, not like a slave. And, but what's interesting in this letter is that he's, he's writing it from prison. And yet, there's no whining, there's no moaning, he's not talking about his state in life, he's basically saying, love this guy. It's, it's positive, it's encouraging. Paul was always encouraging others, regardless of his circumstances. He goes on and says, that's why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. What's the favor? Treat this young man, Onesimus, as a brother in Christ, not like a slave. He says, I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do. But because of your, our love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this as a request from me. And then look how he ends it. He says, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. So he's up in years. He's, he's in Rome. He's a prisoner. And yet, what does he say? I'm a prisoner for the sake of Christ. We've seen that phrase before in the book of Acts. He's not sad. He's not angry. He's not upset. He's not shaking his fist at God. He knows he's there for a reason and he takes advantage of the reason. He also wrote the book of Ephesians while a prisoner and he calls himself Paul, a prisoner for Christ, of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles. Two things that he says, 
Who's he a prisoner of? Jesus Christ. But if you and I were there, we'd say, well, you're a prisoner of Rome. But Paul had a different perspective. Rome was just a cog in the wheel. It, it was just an instrument in God's hands. He's really a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's, he reports to him. He serves him. He's a servant, which is how he referred to himself often, actually a slave of Christ. But for the benefit of you, the Gentiles, and that's going to come full circle by the time we finish, he was commissioned on the road to, road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 to do what? Take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's what he's been doing faithfully. And it's what's ended him up in Rome. And he's still sharing the gospel to Gentiles. He also writes the book of Philippians. He tells them, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me, think about that. What has happened to him? A lot. And most of it, not great. Beatings, stoning, imprisonment, false accusations, chased out of town. All this stuff, he says, has happened to me, and it's helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, where? Rome, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. How do they know that? Because he told them. I've often said the worst job you could have in the Roman army was to be a guard for this guy. Because you would hear the gospel every second of every waking day till you couldn't stand it or you finally accepted it. Because that's what he did. He says, because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. See, Paul was in prison. Paul was under Roman guard. And yet he kept sharing the gospel to anybody and everybody, including his guards. And it encouraged the other believers. And as far as he could tell, then it's worth it. My suffering is worth it because of what it's doing for the kingdom of God. Then finally, he wrote the book of Colossians, and he told them, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for this body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. I am glad when I suffer for you for the sake of the gospel. So this gives us an insight into this man whose life we're going to wrap up. And we've looked at a lot of different individuals, Stephen and others, but he's kind of the hero of the book. He takes up more than half of the book, and he's kind of the hero of our faith. He's uh, one of the greatest evangelists, if not the greatest evangelist that ever lived, bar none, including Billy Graham. This man was a remarkable man, but he was not an extraordinary man. He was just a man who God used in an incredible way. But he knew what it was like to suffer. We've seen it. He understood what suffering was. And up until this point, last week we talked about him being in Jerusalem. We talked about him being hauled out of the temple courtyard and being beaten near to death. We talked about his trials before Festus and Felix and Agrippa, and now he's on his way, getting ready to go on his way to Rome, but he suffered relentlessly for his faith. And we're going to find out today in chapters 27 and 28 that it doesn't get any easier. You would think he could breathe a sigh of relief. Finally, I get out of Judea, I get away from Jerusalem and all these crazy Sanhedrins the Sanhedrin, and I get to go to Rome, and I get to take this trip. It's like a vacation. It will be nothing like a vacation. It's going to be a rough trip, and it's in keeping with what Jesus Christ told him on the road to Damascus, the message given to Ananias. Jesus said, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for what? For the sake of my name. 
And Jesus has kept his promise because over and over again, he has suffered. And he's also going to suffer as he takes this trip to Rome. And what I want you to look for is what's going on in the story. Why is this story so important? And why did Luke take so much time to record this trip? It's, it's not a travel log. He's not writing for a travel magazine. He's writing for you and I as believers. Why did he take, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so much time to chronicle these events? So look at chapter 27, verse 1. When the time came, we set sail for Italy. They're in Caesarea. That's where all the trials between Festus, Felix, and Agrippa have taken place. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Aristarchus, we're told, goes with him. And we don't know a lot about him, but he's going to show up in the story. And they set sail. It's the only way they could get there. They're not going to travel over land. They're in Judea. They're on the coast. And they're going to get in a boat. And they're going to take a trip. Now, this is the one and only map you will see throughout this entire series. I've not shown you any maps. But I'm going to show you this map because it's important to see how far he had to go to get to Rome. You and I could fly to Rome tomorrow, today, in hours. No big deal. This was not an easy trip. And he didn't have exactly great accommodations. So it's 2,344 miles to get there and not in the best of conditions. It's going to take about 36 days. And the only good thing in this, his whole trip's paid by Rome. All expenses paid trip by Rome. But he doesn't get really nice accommodations. It's not a yacht. It's not a cruise ship. It's a working industrial boat that he's going to go on. Well, let me back up here. Aristarchus, a Macedonian. Again, we don't know who this guy is. We don't know why Luke even includes his name. But there are others on this ship besides Paul. There's other prisoners. There's Roman guards. There's the Roman commander, Julius. There's obviously sailors. And there's Luke. Because you're going to see in this context, the writer, Luke, keeps saying, us, we. He includes himself. He's on this ship. So everything you're going to see happened to him as well. It says, we left in a ship whose home port was Adramitium, on the northwest coast of the province of Asia. It was a Greek ship. It was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of, of the province. It was, a, uh, again, an industrial ship. It was a transport ship. It was used to ship all kinds of goods, and so that's why it's making stops along the way. This is not a one-way, nonstop trip. So what kind of ship are we talking about? This is more than likely what the ship looked like. Okay, it had a single sail. It was uh, fair, fairly shallow because it had to sail close to the shore, and it didn't have quarters. There weren't, you know, here's the stateroom, you know, here's, here's your couch, and here's your bed, and no, it was just a ship. It was a working ship on which he sailed. It says, the next day we docked at Sidon. Julius was very kind to Paul, let him go ashore, visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. Then they set out to sea again. And then it says, we encountered strong headwinds. This is like a premonition. This is Luke telling us, this is the beginning of what's to come. Strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. So we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. Keeping to the open sea, we passed along the coast of Cilicia, Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. There the commanding officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy and he put us on board. So 
they switch ships again. This ship's not going to go to Rome. It reached its destination and then turned around and went back where it came from. They have to get another ship, and it's an Egyptian ship. And this is probably what it looked like. It was a grain ship. Egypt was the greatest provider of grain for all this area of the Mediterranean, all the way to Rome. And they made regular trips to Rome. And so this Julius, the commander, books passage for he and Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and what other prisoners he had, and they get on a boat like this. Again, it's a working ship. It's not a luxury ship. There are no accommodations. They're probably down in the hold along with what? The wheat and what other goods they shipped. So it wasn't a pleasant trip. And that's going to be important as we continue the story. It says, we had several days of slow sailing. We had great difficulty. We finally reached finally neared uh, Snidus, and, but the wind was against us. So you see now Luke is saying, it's getting worse. It progresses, slow sailing, great difficulty. Wind was against us. And then it says, we struggled along the coast with great difficulty. It's building. Something's going on. Now, what I think's going on, I think what Luke is trying to tell you and I, he's not just chronicling the trip. He's really trying to show that this is going to be a difficult and perilous journey. Why? Because it's a spiritual, there's spiritual warfare going on here. It says we lost a lot of time because of the weather and the storms. Now, I think the sailors are used to this kind of thing. It's just comes, it's par, par for the course. You're sailing in the open sea. They're used to wind, they're used to storms, but you've got Luke, who's a physician, and you've got Paul, who's a prisoner, and he's also a former Pharisee. He's a Bible teacher. He's not used to being on ships like this. It says the weather becomes dangerous for sea travel this time of year. It's late in the fall, and it's just typical in the Mediterranean for storms to come up. So Paul, now catch this, Paul speaks to the ship's officers about it. About what? That it's getting dangerous. So he goes to them. It doesn't say he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have a visit from an angel. We don't know what prompted him to do this. But he goes to them, and look at what he says. Men, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, danger to our lives as well. Now, who's he talking to? The ship's captains, sailors, seasoned sailors. Here's this, this Jewish prisoner who comes to them and said, Hey, can I, I need to talk to you about something. I don't know if you know this, but we're in trouble. It's dangerous. And we're going to end up in shipwreck. We're going down unless you stop. How do you think they receive that? Like you would receive it. The same way you receive directions from your wife when you're driving. I think I know what I'm doing, honey. I know where I'm going. And you don't, but you're going to go anyway. They don't accept it. The officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. They reject his advice. They reject his counsel. And it's going to come up a little bit later. So since Fairhavens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go into Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. It had a good harbor. Well, it goes on. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. Here's the sailors, seasoned sailors. They know what they're doing. They think they can make it. They've rejected the counsel of Paul. They pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete, but the weather changed abruptly. Something happened they didn't expect. There's a change in the circumstances. And it says, a wind of typhoon strength 
called a nor'easter, and that's the literal translation of the word. It's a, it's a wind that's common to that area that is typhoon-like, comes out and comes at them, and it, it just totally changes things for them. The weather changes. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. Now, I'm not a sailor, but this doesn't sound pleasant to me. They just basically let the wind drive the ship. They couldn't control it. It was out of their hands. And it says, we sailed along the shelter side of a small island named Cauda, where with great difficulty, again, he keeps going back to it. It gets harder and harder and harder. We hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. Why did they do that? Because they don't want to lose the lifeboat. They typically drug it behind them, so they bring it on board the ship, tie it down, because they know they might need this. This is how desperate they're becoming. They bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. Now, if I'm Paul, I'm Luke, I'm a physician or a prisoner, former Pharisee, and I see sailors tying ropes around the hull of the ship, how does that make me feel? Not great. I start to get even a little bit more worried that this is not going well. It says they were afraid of being driven across the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship down. They are doing everything in their power to save their skin, dealing with what's happening. But it says they were driven before the wind and then a gale force wind continued to batter the ship. They began to throw over their cargo. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear, some of their equipment, threw it overboard, desperation setting in. It says the terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. This is a critical phase in this whole story. Whose hope was gone? Whose hope? The sailors. It's not Paul's hope. It's not Luke's hope. It's their hope. All their hope was gone. They have done everything they know to do to save themselves, save the ship. They don't really give a rip about Paul or Luke. I don't think the sailors, they're Egyptian sailors. They probably don't care about the Roman soldiers. They care about themselves and they can't make it work. And the ESV says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Here's Luke saying, they, the sailors, have abandoned all hope. They've given up. That's how bad it's gotten. Wind, typhoon strength, wind, waves battering, everything's getting worse, it's, and they give up hope. Hope of what? Being saved. They're going to die. These sailors have resigned themselves to the fact that we're going to die here. And what I think Luke is telling you and I, through symbolism, he's basically saying there's a, there's a battle going on here. And to me, it's a very clear battle. There's a battle between... God, the will of God, and the will of the enemy. See, the enemy, Satan, doesn't want Paul to make it to Rome. Now, why would that be the case? The, the passage doesn't tell us that. But why would Satan want, not want him to make it to Rome? Because Rome is the center of the world. It is, it is the most powerful nation. And if this guy makes it to Rome, Satan knows what he'll do when he gets there. And he knows that the Roman roads will then take the gospel to the far corners of the earth. And he doesn't want that to happen any more than he wanted Jesus to make it out of Jerusalem alive. And he didn't. So what's happening? He's bringing everything in his arsenal against Paul. And yet, what do we know? Paul's going to make it to Rome. How do we know that? Because God said so. It's a battle going on. 
See, Paul's on this journey, and what dawns on me is that Paul's on this journey, but he's not alone. And I don't just mean Luke. Who else is on that ship with him? Roman soldiers, Egyptian sailors, Aristarchus, whoever he was, other prisoners, his, his buddy, his physician, Luke. They're all on this boat. They're all on a journey trying to get to safety. But some have given up hope. And what it makes me think of, guys, you and I are on a journey, right? We're on, we're on a life journey. And we're on our way to somewhere. And our ship is this earth. We're not in heaven yet. We're going to study the book of Revelation, and we're going to find out there's a day coming when we're going to get to heaven. But in the meantime, we're stuck on this boat, this ship, this thing called earth. And everything around us is going spiritually haywire. The enemy's attacking. Everything is against us. That's why we're going to do the study on science versus religion. Science is opposed to, at least many in science are opposed to faith. They live for reason. And they attack faith and they ridicule faith. And they say faith and science are incompatible. But we are on this journey and we've got all these people traveling with us. Some, like Roman soldiers or Egyptian sailors don't worship our God, don't believe in Jesus Christ, but guess what? They're going through the same thing we are. And many of them are losing hope. But who should have hope? Us. See, there's difficulty. There's trouble. There's all kinds of things flying at everybody on that ship, not just Paul. See, when the enemy attacks, he doesn't just attack you. He attacks your family. He attacks your wife, your kids, your, your friends. He attacks your work. He attacks everybody in your vicinity. And he is attacking today. Just like this, everybody's going through trouble. And everybody on that ship was trying to do what they could to save themselves. And isn't that true of the world today? Isn't that what everybody's trying to do? Save yourself. Take care of yourself. Do whatever you have to do to survive this life. It's all about you. These sailors didn't care about Paul. They didn't care about Luke. They didn't care about Julius. They cared about them. And I guarantee if it, was, if it boiled down to it, each one of those sailors would have saved their own life and let everybody die if that's what it took. And that's the world we live in. That's the world Paul lived in. But everything they tried failed. Everything. Because what do we know? What do we know as believers? There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. There's no other hope. There's no other help. There's no other way to get through this life without Jesus Christ. And yet all around you, you're going to leave today. You're going to go to work. You're going to be around people, either coworkers or customers, who, who think that somehow they can survive this life without God, without Christ, and they can't. And Paul knew that. And Paul's going to tell them that. You've got all these professional, seasoned, hardened, weathered sailors, and they've given up all hope. We'll never make it. Well, interestingly, interestingly enough, in verse 21, Paul calls the crew together. Not just the officers. Now he gets everybody. This guy had some chutzpah that he would do this. And he says, men, you should have listened to me in the first place. I can't imagine what prompted him to say this. <laughs> Don't you love it when somebody says, I, I, told you, I told you so. Don't you love it when your wife does that? These guys, again, seasoned sailors, they know what they're doing. They've tried everything. They're frustrated. They're wet. They're tired. They haven't eaten in days. And this guy walks up, this Jewish prisoner, 
And he says, you should have listened to me in the first place. You should have gone to Crete or stayed in Crete. And he says, you would have avoided all this damage and loss. And then he throws in another little lump, but take courage. You should have listened to me, but it's okay. Take courage. What the heck do you know about any of this, Paul? What, what, what right do you have to speak to us about our job and what we know about the sea? And you tell me to take courage. Then he says, none of you are going to lose your lives, even though the ship's going to go down. What? What's the worst thing that could happen to a sailor? Lose your ship in the ocean. And, and yet, what does he say? Take courage. It's okay. We're all going to make it. For last night, now think about this. You're an Egyptian sailor. You got this Jewish slave standing in front of you. And then he tells you this. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage. I believe in God. What? I would have punched him. I'd have thrown him overboard. I said, okay, you believe God? Here, let him take care of you. We're sick of you. We're sick of hearing from you. There's no indication that any of these men listened to him, believed him. They didn't convert. They didn't turn to Yahweh. But what's Paul telling these people? I have heard from my God. Hey, have you heard from your God lately or your gods? They're Egyptians. They got lots of them. He said, I heard from my God, and here's what he told me. I'm going to Rome. We're all, if I'm going to Rome, you're going to Rome. We're all getting to Rome. But you got to believe. you got to have courage. Don't be afraid, because I'm going to trial. Now, that had to sound weird to most of those guys. You sound like you want to go to trial, Paul. Wouldn't you rather die in the ocean than go to trial? No, I want to go, go to Rome. I'm supposed to go to Rome. It's God's will that I go to Rome. And guess what? You get to go with me because we're all going to get there. And he says, I believe God. So what's the source of his confidence? God. It's not a trick question. God. In spite of all the stuff going on around him, he believes God. What's the source of their confidence? It ain't God. It's their knowledge of sailing. They've tried everything, right? They've done all they know to do to try to save their skin, and it's not working. It's their years of experience. We're seasoned. We know what we're doing. We are capable, but they're finding out they're not. They believe in their ship, but what did they have to do to their ship? Tie ropes around it just to keep it afloat. And then they believe in the power of their false gods. It's going to say in just a few verses later that they prayed. Who did they pray to? They didn't pray to Yahweh. They prayed to their false gods, the Egyptian gods. And there were gods of the sea. There were gods that they prayed to. There were the God of the Nile. There was the God of the ocean. They prayed because what? They were desperate. Their confidence was in them. Their confidence was in their surroundings. Who is Paul's confidence in? God. See, guys, as we're on this journey, there are people you're going to meet and know and you're going to run into who are desperate, who are scared, who are wondering what's going to happen. And you have the ability or should have the ability to say, take courage. I believe God. I know how the story ends. But you got to believe God. You got to put your trust in him. You got to know who to have confidence in. So take courage. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It was our 
Key verse for the men's ministry when I took it over 20 years ago. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. What a great verse for men. Be watchful, be aware, look around you, look at what's going on. Look at the circumstances. In other words, Paul was not oblivious to the circumstances, right? He knew the wind was there. He knew the waves were there. He knew they were desperate. He saw the sailors running back and forth on the deck of the ship. He knew he was watchful, but it says, stand firm in the faith, the faith you have in Christ. It's going to work out. You're going to get to Rome, Paul. Act like a man. Don't whine. Don't moan. Don't worry. Don't fret. Be strong. And it reminds me of Psalm 31, 24. So be strong and courageous, all you who put your hope where? In the Lord. Not in yourself, not in your 401k, not in your investments, not in your work, not in your ability to make money, not in, in the Lord. Be strong and courageous, all you who have hope where? In the Lord. See, Paul believed in God. His hope was in God. I'm going to get to Rome, even though what? What happens in Rome? More trials, possible death, but that's God's will. Therefore, I'm going. He had hope. He had belief. See, he had confidence in the plan of God. One of the reasons I want to study the book of Revelation, as difficult as that book is, is that it is the plan of God for all of mankind. And we should want to know and believe in the plan of God. God knows what he's doing. We don't need to panic. It doesn't matter what you see happening, the wind, the waves, the storms. It doesn't matter because God's ultimately in control. He has a plan. See, God had told Paul, it's all going to turn out. It's all going to be okay. And you know what? God's told you and I the same thing. That's the book of Revelation. It's all going to work out. Don't worry. Don't panic. I got it under control. Paul wasn't going to let the wind, the waves, the storms dissuade him from his faith in God. See, if I was on that ship and I thought I was going to Rome and suddenly all hell broke loose around me, literally, I would begin to doubt and wonder, hmm, maybe I'm not going to get to Rome. Maybe God's not in control. Maybe it's out of his control. Maybe the enemy's going to win. Maybe I'm going down. Maybe this is it. But what, what was Paul's assessment? Nope, we're going to Rome. Not only that, everybody's going to get saved. See, his faith wasn't based on escape from suffering. And too often, that's what we try to put our faith in. I'll believe you if you save me from all pain and suffering. If you keep me out of the storms of life. But that's not what Paul believed. Because what did the angel tell him? You're going to suffer shipwreck. The boat's going down. It's going to sink. So Paul was promoting courage in the face of danger, not escape from danger. Because here's what I know. If there's no danger, why do you need courage? If you're not facing danger, you don't need courage. You don't pray for it. You don't need it. You just keep going on with your life. The danger that comes into our life, the attacks of the enemy, just the living in a fallen world, the reason it's there is so that we might have courage and be forced to trust in our God and rely on him. So it's hope in spite of circumstances. Hope in spite of the storm. The storm was coming. The ship was going to go down. And yet Paul's saying, be courageous, have hope. And I love what he wrote to the Romans sometime earlier, long before he ever got on that ship. 
Now, hope is, that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? If you've won the lottery, you don't have to hope to win the lottery, right? You already have it. Now you just got to figure out how not to lose it all. But he says, but if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Hope always has patience tied to it. The willingness to wait. I hope for it. I long for it. I expect it. I'm going to wait for it. That's the picture that we see all throughout the scriptures. Courage. He wrote to the Corinthians, so we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Oh, yeah, I do. I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. Whatever it is you're smoking, I want some. Because I look at the troubles. I can see them. I know what's going on in my life. I know the heartache, the hurt, the trouble, the trials. But he says, rather, we fix our gaze on the things we cannot see. What are the things we cannot see? Heaven, eternity, God, Christ. We can't see those things. We put our hope in them. Again, that's the book of Revelation. It's going to give you these incredible glimpses into the unseen world. And John has such a hard time describing them that he gives us these descriptions that are kind of wacky and wild. And yet it's, it's a man trying to ex explain the inexplicable the unknown, the unseen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see are gonna last forever. Where's your focus? You're looking at the waves, you're looking at the wind, you're looking at the storms of life, or are you looking at the future hope that you have? See, Paul had hope. I'm going, I know where I'm going. I'm going to Rome. Well, what happens? About midnight, the 14th night of the storm, we're being driven across the Sea of Adria. The sailors since land was near. They drop a weighted line. They're making measurements. It's getting shallower and shallower, 120 feet, 90 feet. At this rate, they're afraid we're going to be driven against the rocks of the shore. We're going to shipwreck. So they throw out four anchors trying to slow the boat down. And then what do they do? They prayed for daylight. Why? Because it's dark. What do sailors hate in the middle of a storm? darkness because you can't see where the shoals are. You can't see where the land is and can, you don't know where the rocks are. And so they start praying. Who do they pray to? Their gods, their false gods, their Egyptian gods. And it says they finally cut off the anchors, left them in the sea. They lowered the rudders. They raised the foresail. They headed towards shore. They hit a shoal, just like the angel had said, ran the ship aground too soon. The bow of the ship stuck fast. The stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves. It begins to break apart. The soldiers want to kill all the prisoners, and the Julius, for whatever reason, won't let them do it. I think it's God. Verse 43, he spares Paul. He didn't let them carry out their plan, and then he ordered everybody to jump overboard and swim for land. Get to land. And what does it say? The others held on to planks or debris from the broken ship, so everyone escaped safely to shore. What happened? Everybody gets saved. I love this choice of word by Luke. Everybody escapes safely. Kind of, it's, just, it's like an oxymoron shipwreck, jumping in the water, grabbing for debris, trying to make it to shore. But everybody gets there and they washed up on the island of Malta. They didn't even know where they were. And it wasn't an abandoned beach. It was an occupied beach. People from the village nearby saw what happened. They came down, they built fires, they helped everybody get off uh, up on the land and everybody was saved. Soldiers, sailors, slaves, prisoners, just like God promised. But here's what's even more important. Everybody was alive just as Paul had believed. See, God promised, but there's that belief that has to go with it. Doesn't mean that my belief's gonna keep God from keeping his promise, but guys, we need to believe the promises of God. We need to believe what he says, that he will do what he said. 
So what, here's what we know happens on Malta, and we're just going to blow through this. He gets to this island. There's villagers there to help them, and he immediately gets bit by a snake. It sucks to be Paul. We know it's a poisonous snake because the villagers who live in the island and know all the snakes see it happen, and they go, oh, my gosh. This guy's done something really bad to offend his God because he survived a shipwreck, but now he's going to die of poisoning. And they all stood back and waited to see him blow up and die. I mean, just swell up. And Paul just shakes it off and goes on with his life. He lives. Then he goes on and he heals the father of a local, local dignitary named Publius. He performs other healings of the honors. What's he doing? He's doing ministry. And I guarantee it doesn't, Luke doesn't say this, but I guarantee he's sharing the gospel with everybody. Why? Because that's his job. That's what he does. See, he's on a mission. He's on Malta. Okay, I'm on Malta. All right. Who needs healing? Who needs to hear the gospel? Who's lost? He's going to Rome, but he's going to take advantage of his time on Malta. And what you see in this story is that nothing stops him. Nothing. L let's just review. The Jews tried to beat him to death back in Jerusalem in the temple courtyard. There were 40 assassins who made a vow to kill him. They failed. The violent storm didn't kill him. He, he survives a shipwreck, and he survives getting bitten by a snake. Charmed life? No. Blessed life. God-ordained life. His life was in the hands of God, and he knew it. He didn't worry. I think it's interesting that the snake bites him and there's no sign of panic. He just kind of shakes it off and he, I'm not going to die by a snake bite. I got to get to Rome. He didn't worry. He didn't panic. So he gets to Rome and this is where we sum it up. Three days after getting there, he calls together the local Jewish leaders. Isn't that just like Paul? What has he done in every town he's ever gone to? Go to the local synagogue. Even though he's the evangelist to the Gentiles, he gets these Jewish leaders and what he's going to do, and we're not going to read all this, he gets them together and he tells them everything that happened back in Jerusalem so that they can know the truth because he knows that the Sanhedrin are going to be showing up in town soon and he wants to get to these people before the Sanhedrin poisons the well. And he basically, the next verses, he explains all that happened and why he's in Rome. And they, they tell him, said, we've had no letters from Judea. Nobody showed up to tell us anything. We have no reports against you, but we want to hear what you believe. Talk about a red flag in front of a bull. That was like music to Paul's ear. Oh, you want to hear what I believe? All right. You're going to hear it. They say, the only thing we know about this movement is that it's denounced everywhere. So a time was set. And on that day, a large number of people, Jews, came to Paul's lodging, and he explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. What does Paul do? Share the gospel. Use the scriptures, the law of Moses, the books of the prophets. And he spoke to them, it says, from morning till evening. You want to know what I believe? How much time you have? Remember Aristarchus, the guy that was in the, sitting in the windowsill when Paul preached from morning to evening the last time, and he, f he fell asleep and plunged to his death? Some of these people probably wish they were dead because he wouldn't stop talking. He wouldn't stop preaching, but he's explaining what? Salvation. And it says some were persuaded, they believed, others didn't believe, and then they broke out into an argument. They started fighting amongst themselves. Reminds us of the story of the Sanhedrin. 
And it's going to lead Paul to leave them with one final word. And this is like the, the culmination of the story. It's the culmination of Acts, but it's also where Paul finally decides, I'm done sharing the gospel with Jews. He says, the Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah. Now listen to what he says. He's quoting Isaiah. You hear, Jews, but you won't understand. I just told you from morning till evening everything I know about Jesus Christ, but you won't understand. You see, but you don't comprehend. This is exactly what happened with the Pharisees and Jesus. He goes on and says, your hearts are hardened. You will not accept the truth. Your ears can't hear. I'm speaking, but you're not accepting. That's the world around us. And then he says, your eyes are blind. You can't see. And then he sums it up with these words from God to the people of Israel centuries earlier. They cannot turn to me and let me heal them. See, what's really important for us to understand is that Paul is telling these Jews that I am done. I'm over you. I'm going to take the gospel. I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles and they will accept it. And even though he's in prison, he'll get out for about a year and he'll go back and minister again. He's saying, right now, guys, it's going to the Gentiles. From this point forward, it's going to the Gentiles. That does not mean Jews aren't coming to faith in Christ. They are. But the primary mission right now, we are living in what we call the church age. That's what we believe. And from Acts chapter 2 to now, we've been living in the church age. And the primary objective is for the gospel to go to the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's how Paul leaves it. I'm taking it to the Gentiles. Now, is, is God done with the Jews? No. And that's what we're going to find out in the book of Revelation. We know at the end of this, this book that Paul's going to stay there for two years sharing the gospel to anybody and everybody who'll listen. But here's what we know. God's not done yet. God's not done. So this is the last passage we're going to look at, and we're, we're going to close it. Romans 11, 25 through 27. Paul wrote this again to the Romans, believing Christians in Rome. Listen to what he says. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. What did Paul just tell the Jews in Rome when he got there? You have hard hearts. But this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. What does that mean? God has a number of those who are going to come to faith in Christ. He already knows it. I don't know what it is. He does. And when that number reaches what it's supposed to be, the church age ends and Christ comes back for his church. And then God will deal again with the Jews. It says, all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem. He will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. See, God, according to Ezekiel and Daniel and other books of prophecy, tells us that God is going to redeem his people yet again. Not because they deserve it, not because they choose it, but because God is gracious and kind and merciful. God's not done yet. So with that in mind, Here's your last three discussion questions for the semester. We are far from extraordinary men. I hate to break that news to you. But we worship an extraordinary God. That's what this book is all about. In what ways does this study of Acts help strengthen your resolve to live boldly and courageously in this world? I hope it has. 
I hope you've gotten something out of this that you can take into the world. Paul faced struggles with trials of all kinds. Does his confidence in God, in spite of the circumstances, encourage you? How? And how could you apply that in your day-to-day? Whatever it is you're going through, physically, financially, work-wise. Finally, the plan of God didn't stop with Paul's arrival in Rome. Go back and look at that passage we just read, Romans 11, 25 through 27. How should this give us hope? See, one of the reasons I want to study Revelation is because I believe it's a book of hope. It's a book of mystery. It's a book of all kinds of things, but it's ultimately a book of hope. It's the reason it's in the Bible. It's the last book. Why? Because it tells us of the last things, and it should bring us hope. Father, I pray for these men as they talk around the tables that this last little session would be the richest, deepest one that they've had. I pray that they would encourage one another, that if they're struggling with doubt, if they're struggling with a lack of courage, that they would speak into each other's lives and say, take courage. I believe God. You should too. He's a good God. He's a faithful God. He is a promise-keeping God. Father, may we be men who believe you. And Father, as we move into Easter weekend, Father, help us see the resurrection as the fulfillment of one of your main promises, that you were going to send your son to be our savior, that he was going to die and pay for our sins, but then he was going to rise again from the grave and he was going to ascend back into heaven and he was going to send his Holy Spirit, which he did and he has. And yet, Father, he's going to return. And may we keep that in mind as we celebrate Easter. It's not the fact that he left. It's the fact that he's coming back. And may we live with that hope and may it give us courage in the midst of this dark world. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.